Welcome everyone to episode 102, Stem Cells and Graduate School. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is The Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thanks so much for tuning in. Dalen, how are you doing over there? I'm doing pretty great, Kiki. I'm on the road this episode at U Cincinnati talking to grad student Sierra. We're talking about grad school. We're talking about stem cells. We're talking about a lot of things that are relevant to things we've been talking about on the show lately. So I'm excited, Keek. I'm really excited. We should be excited. This is a it's, a, it's a good idea. Everyone out there, welcome back to the show. Let's get down to some business. Make sure you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com where you can not only subscribe to our newsletter, but you will also find all of our past episodes and other great resources. And of course, follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook. And of course, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. You'll get those new episodes downloaded automatically to your phone. And now we know, we all know how important grad students are to biomedical research, and we know that there are many grad students who, graduate students who listen to this podcast. And so, yeah, we thought it would be a nice change to get a graduate student's perspective straight from the source. And so Sierra Marable is our guest today. She's a graduate student at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center studying molecular and developmental biology. But before we explore the grad student experience, you want to round it up, Dalen? I do, Kiki, but not quite yet, because I, again, have to remind our viewers about this survey. You know, we want to improve the podcast. We want to know what you think about the podcast. Go to our website, stemcellpodcast.com, and click on the picture of the Starbucks mug to take our two-minute survey and let us know how we're doing and what we can do to improve the show. And a reminder, you could win a $10 Starbucks card, so don't sleep. That's right. Didn't you double down on that last episode? Why why are you going to remind the world about that? (laughs) Yeah, all right, fine. You know what? Triple down. Triple down. I'm going to make a deal right now with the viewers. That's like three lattes. Listen to this. (laughs) Wait for it, okay? If we can double the respondents week to week, I will continue to double down, all right? So I guess I'm on the hook for $20 this time. So that's $30 total. Next week, if we double the response, I'll be on the hook for 40 You want to see me go broke? Get to responding. That's right, everybody. Do it. Also, this week, guys, don't forget, the week's roundup is sponsored by Neural Cell News, which is sent to more than 5,000 neuroscience researchers every week. Sign up at NeuralCellNews.com to keep current on everything that is happening in the neural field. But now it's time for our roundup. Let's make this happen. You know what's happening this week? Nobel Prizes are being awarded. This morning, I woke up to news that gravitational waves have won the Nobel Prize for physics. And the prize for physiology or medicine, which we all love on this one, on this here podcast, right? Body clocks, discoveries about circadian rhythms and the clock-like ups and downs of daily life (laughs) have won the Nobel Prize for Jeffrey C. Hall, Michael Rosbosch, and Michael W. Young. We all know these circadian rhythms. There are daily cycles of hormones, gene activity, and biological processes that govern sleep, body temperature, and metabolism, and they can cause health consequences when things go wrong. Hall and Rossbash discovered the first molecular gear in these circadian clockworks, a protein called period, that increases and decreases in abundance on a regular cycle during the day, and Young discovered that another protein called timeless works with period to drive the clock. Young has also discovered other circadian clockworks that are involved in there as well. Yeah, he's my man, too. Young also happens to be my man. He doesn't know it, but I went to Rockefeller (laughs) University, and I always admired him from afar. You know what, Dr. Young, I'm inviting you to come on the show. Please, pretty, pretty, please. You know, you were my mentor. You didn't know it. You you were a guiding light for me. Come on. That would be amazing. I'm not going to hold my breath. eh, We'll put it up. Yeah, we should put it out there. And congratulations to all who have won the prizes so far. There will be more awarded after this podcast has already, or before this podcast actually goes to air. 
old news, old news, but still worth It'll mentioning. Be old news by then. It is worth. Yes. Other old news that's new news. Uh, researchers have been trying to figure out what makes Zika virus so terrible. How come it is able to kill nerve cells in developing brains, or at least these developing neurons, right? What is the change that happened? Because it's been around for a really long time and never used to cause microcephaly. So researchers are reporting in the September 28th issue of Science on work that they did uh, looking at mutations in the Zika virus. They used a strain that was isolated in Cambodia in 2010 that caused some brain cell death that results in a slightly smaller brain than normal, but really doesn't do as much damage as these new mutants that we find in Central and South America. So they also compared a strain of this virus with three Zika strains that were collected from patients who contracted the virus in Venezuela, Samoa, and Martinique during the 2015-16 to 16 epidemic and found seven mutational differences between the Cambodian virus from 2010 and these epidemic strains. They then took that Cambodian virus and engineered seven versions of it with different instances of each of these epidemic strain mutations. And they injected those viruses into fetal mouse brains, and they found that one mutation in particular, S139N, was the one that killed brain cells in fetal mice, destroying also human brain cells grown in lab dishes much more aggressively than the Cambodian strain from 2010 did. The mutation changes an amino acid in a Zika protein called PRM, and the protein helps the virus mature within infected cells and get out of the cells to infect others, which may be part of why it has such a devastating effect. But the researchers who did this work don't really know why yet tweaking the protein makes the virus kill brain cells more readily. And we still really don't know whether this culprit, whether this is, this mutation is the culprit in microcephaly. But this is a step in the right direction. There's some questions remaining, but I love it. I love the idea of this They've kind of like narrowed it down out of this one amino acid substitution that had a transformative effect. And I think it won't be long now before they focus on this versus the older version, do some structure, crystal structure, you know, yeah. NMR, whatever that is, and find some targets and figure out how that one confirmation change can, uh, you know, alter the infection. What is it? Infectivity of the virus? It's infectivity and also the effect on the, the nervous system. I mean, it is that the, the fact that it really targets these developing brain cells that's the problem. See a lot of good things. Mark my words. We said it on the show. There's going to be a structure story on Zika coming up. That's right. Okay. So you're traveling this week, right, Dalen? Yes. Do you ever bring a plastic bag to put your dirty laundry in after you've worn clothes? Or do you just kind of throw your laundry all over the place? I just throw it away. <laughs> That's right. Over there on the East Coast, you have a much larger problem with bed bugs in hotels, right? This is the vile creature that has caused so much trouble for people across the Eastern Seaboard. It is also moving across the United States. Bed bugs, Cymex lectularius. Researchers just did a study in the UK looking at bed bugs to figure out kind of what is attracting them and maybe how they travel to new destinations. How are they moving from hotel to hotel, from room to room, from house to house? How is this happening? William Hentley and his colleagues at the University of Sheffield set up some fake bedrooms. Each had two bags of clothes one a dirty bag of clothes, and one a clean bag of clothes. And then one of the two rooms also had carbon dioxide pumped into it to simulate human breathing. The carbon dioxide drew the bed bugs out. So we know, similarly to mosquitoes, bed bugs are attracted to this byproduct of human respiration, carbon dioxide. So we can't stop breathing. What else is going on? The bed bugs congregated in and around the dirty clothes bag much more than the clean clothes bag. So the researchers think that residual human odor compounds are probably also a draw for the bugs. This provides some of the first evidence. I mean, we all know it's like, okay, don't put your suitcase on the floor. Just don't do that, right? But this is the first experimental evidence that 
bedbugs might be using your laundry to move between destinations. This is in September 28th Scientific Reports. I didn't know you're not supposed to put your suitcase on the floor. Don't put your suitcase on the floor. The bed bugs crawl out and then they crawl in your suitcase and then you bring them home. Or if you're going to another that. hotel. Oh, yeah, no. I knew that you never sleep on top of the comforter because it's never washed and it's gross. But I didn't know that you don't put the bag down. Oh, my God. Oh, that's what that little table is for. Yes. That little fold-out The little fold-out suitcase stand so that you can put your suitcase up on top so you you can keep your suitcase up off of the floor which is better for keeping them away from the bed bugs and then additionally what I'm going to do from now on that I have never done before I will be traveling with a plastic bag to put my dirty clothes in a plastic bag so that maybe they are less attractive you know if it's all in a plastic bag maybe the bed bugs won't be able to smell them I'm still throwing all my stuff away (laughs) That's right. Travel and then toss it. I got to have a look at the material and methods. Just as an aside for this paper. Can you imagine? I want to see the enter in a dirty clothes bag. I mean, how do you describe dirty clothes bag in a scientific experiment? I can't wait. I can't. Yep. You got to read that. (laughs) Other research out in September 26th, JAMA finds that about 20% of adolescents have suffered at least one concussion. And this is in a survey of 13,008 10th and 12th graders that took part in the 2016 Monitoring the Future survey. And this is an annual national survey of adolescent behavior and health that's given in schools. This was one of the first times that teens were asked whether they'd had a head injury diagnosed as a concussion. One in five said yes. Of those, 5.5% of them reported two or more concussions. And uh, of these concussive reports, The ones who reported it were teens who were in competitive sports, most likely to be male, white, and in a higher grade level, so the 10th or the 12th graders as opposed to the 8th graders. Past studies have found that kids taking part in contact sports have a higher risk of suffering concussions, but the authors of this new study also note that data are lacking on how many U.S. adolescents have had concussions, and that's information that we really need to improve our prevention efforts now that we are pretty sure that concussions cause serious brain damage. Yeah. Have you, have you ever had a concussion, Kiki? No, I've never been diagnosed as having a concussion. I've done martial arts and been hit in the head before, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I've never had a concussion diagnosed. <laughs> I had one, but I was an adult. I feel like it's especially especially damaging for developing brains, so uh, yeah. this is an important study. Yeah. I'm going to be talking my son out of football. I have to say it, right? No, no question. <laughs> I don't like, think there's going to be – football in America is going to be less entertaining, I think, moving forward, and I'm happy about it. Yeah. My final story here has to do with some potentially good news for HIV treatments Researchers uh, in two different studies, one in science and one in science translational medicine, report on their research into using antibodies to prevent infection by HIV. In science translational medicine, a team describes a cocktail of two single antibodies that each target a different region of the HIV virus, but then mixed together prevented infection from multiple strains of an HIV-like virus in monkeys. The science study researchers created a what they call triple threat antibody molecule that's able to bind to three spots on the virus at the same time. And that also, this broadly neutralizing antibody, is also very effective against infection with the simian human immunodeficiency virus in monkeys. These are exciting frames of research because as of now, there's no single antibody, according to virologist Dan Baruch of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, that can block all of the strains. Virologist David Margolis of the University of North Carolina School of Medicine in Chapel Hill has also noted that the approaches are most likely to have preventative potential but they also may be therapeutic, and the antibody combinations might replace oral antiretroviral therapy or stand in for oral therapy in medical situations where pills can't be taken. And the next step for both of these methods is to test the combination antibodies in people. So we'll find out whether the strategy is 
most effective as a preventative measure or a treatment or both. But these papers really do suggest that to achieve optimal protection in humans, multiple antibodies or antibody targets are going to be needed. What an amazing arc it's been for HIV and AIDS in terms of therapeutic progression. I feel like of all the things you could point towards as seemingly intractable disease that, you know, we've made amazing progress on. Are we close to a cure, Kiki? I really hope so. I mean, it really seems like we... We're getting closer and closer to figuring this one out. I mean, the problem is, is that it it mutates and it changes so much, right? You know, HIV that infects one person may not be the same HIV that is infecting somebody else. There are multiple strains, and and then it goes and it hides. I mean, your story earlier there about the Zika, maybe that's, you know, we're back to the future on HIV. Maybe Zika will help with HIV. Who knows, right? Or maybe it'll mutate and become a pandemic. I don't know. I'm going to focus on the negative. because That is not, yeah, I don't like that one. (laughs) Do you have anything positive? Because I'm done with my roundup. What you got? All right. Well, I'll tell you, you know, if we do want to make progress on the inevitable pandemic HIV crisis, we're going to need something. And that's the Translational Research Award that the Senate panel, Senate panel recently blocked the NIH from revising and restricting. Okay, so I've got to give you a little bit of background here. There's these things. They're called the uh, CTSAs, Clinical and Translational Science Awards. All right, and uh, they were created in 2006 by then-director of the NIH, Elias Zerhouni, as part of his larger push to turn lab findings and translate them into treatments. There was a big push back then. What are we getting? What are we paying for? All that taxpayer money. We want to see treatments. So in 2012, this vehicle became the lion's share of the new National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences at NIH. Okay, so they got folded into this greater institute. And since then, the CTSA investigators have repeatedly clashed with the director of that larger institute that engulfed it, NCATS, let's call it, the director, Chris Austin. So Austin, when he came in, He began adding Clinical Trials Innovation Network and other elements to the CTSA program. And this was an expansion that he was, you know, intending to to maybe distribute money more, to accelerate translation, whatever his motivation. The directors of the CTSA investigators, they feared that this spreading of the money would come at the expense of their center's budget. And this was true. Austin also began trimming the length of the renewal awards from five to four years. And there were rumors earlier in the year that the funding was going to be cut from 90 to 50 percent of the mm. overall NCATS budget. So the idea was awesome. was coming through, and he was just, you know, cutting this whole program down. Meanwhile, this is made up of a pretty vast center of around 57 to 62, it varies. It's hovered around there, programs. And the awards range from 3 to $10 million a year. And the idea is this is money that's going to support big training programs with regulatory expertise and all the resources needed. And they're usually made up of these big-time creative senior investigators that are very well-funded, and they take a big investment from the university, the host institutions that house them. So the idea was once you get the momentum going with these things, any kind of slashing the budget is hugely impactful in the negative. So the CTSA leaders took their concerns to influential members of the Senate Appropriations Committee, including the chair of the panel that funds NIH, Senator Roy Blunt, and another senior appropriator, Senator Richard Shelby. And the legislators proved to be a receptive audience. So this is after this, these conversations were had. This was the announcement that came out of the report. The committee is deeply concerned about NCATS management of the CTSA program. NCATS appears to be both ignoring congressional intent regarding the number of CTSA hubs, as well as attempting to erode financial support for the hubs. So it seems like they were very responsive in the Senate Appropriations Committee and kind of, you know, gave a little slap on the wrist there to Chris Austin. And the report also took issue with NCATS plans to change the configuration and funding structure. You know, immediately after this, the the NCATS kind of came back capitulating with the quote there, with the encouragement of the Senate Appropriations Committee, we have revised the plan for fiscal year 2017 and decided we would make all of this year's award for five years. Now, you know, I I don't know enough about this whole 
vehicle to speak that intelligently about it. But it kind of reminded me of like big business maybe going to the government and ensuring lower tax cuts, corporate or something. I don't know. It seemed like a bunch of senior investigators who had a lot of money went and kind of, you know, hamstrung the effort to more broadly distribute the money. So that would be the kind of anti-view. I guess the pro-view is that these major hubs have been maintained and they're a major vehicle of innovation. I don't know. I don't come down on either side. But devil's advocate might say it looks like it's an inside job. They went to the government and the government made it all right and kept the money going. There were some big cuts being planned. So I mean, people were looking at their budgets and going, ah, we're either going to get completely cut or we're going to have ourselves hamstrung. And so we need to do something about it. And so that makes sense. What you're saying makes sense. But partially looking at it is really, I mean, that was such a massive plan of cutting. Would that have really been beneficial to cut everything and hack it so drastically right. it's in, in, in a single go as opposed to... I guess, a, a more structured reduction or redistribution? To be fair, the awards that were getting knocked down to four years in renewal instead of five are ones that were underperforming according to their yeah. projections. And I think the real question is when all these cuts were being made, where was that money being redistributed to? If you yeah. told me it was being redistributed to like a young investigators fund, I'd be like, you know what? That's good because these huge centers, they got plenty of revenue streams. I know a lot of money's wrapped up in these cores and hubs and whatnot, but those leaders of those, that's not the only grant they have. They're all major investigators who are running the show at their university, and they have a lot of sway. So I think maybe I lack the information to make an intelligent judgment on this. I'm just giving you the news, Kiki. And I thank you for it. <laughs> I'm going to go on. Now we got from the NIH into kidneys. So this is mini kidneys. I like mini anything. If you can make me an organite, I'll stand up. This is a, an idea, though, that extends on just the mini kidney, because that's old news at this point. By extending this mini kidney organoids that contain like a realistic microanatomy and allow the tracking of early stages of polycystic kidney disease. So polycystic kidney disease affects 12 million people. I had no idea. Until recently, scientists have been unable to recreate the progression of this disease in a laboratory setting. But that's being overcome. And this is a report coming out of uh, Benjamin Friedman, Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Division of Nephrology at UW School of Medicine, and his team at the Kidney Research Institute. Uh, they led these studies in conjunction with scientists at other institutions in the United States and Canada. It's going to be published pretty soon in Nature Materials. And they had previously established that they could make organoids that made these polycystic kidney disease, please, can we call that PKD, these PKD-like cysts, but now what they've shown is that depending on the substrate, they can get like big cysts, which are maybe non-physiological, but if they put it in the right substrate, they can get like mini cysts, which are more akin to the physiological progression of disease. And there's other manipulations of the organoid that can also affect the progression of the disease. So quoting um, Nellie Cruz, who's the lead author on the paper, we've discovered that polycystin proteins, which are causing the disease, are sensitive to their microenvironment. Therefore, if we can change the way they interact or what they are experiencing on the outside of the cell, we might actually be able to change the course of the disease. So this is also coupled with another paper that's about to be published in Stem Cells where Freeman and his team discuss how podocytes, which are specialized cells in the body that filter blood plasma from urine uh, to form urine, can be generated and tracked in the lab environment. And study of gene-edited human kidney organoids showed how podocytes from certain filtration barriers called slit diaphragms, just the same way they do during development in utero. And this may give insight into how to counter the effects of some congenital gene mutations that can cause something called, wait for it, glomerulosclerosis, which is another cause of kidney failure. So these are two papers that are examples of how these scientists are making progress towards developing effective personalized therapies for polycystic kidney disease and other kidney disorders using these kind of mini kidney organoids. So this is good stuff. I love it. I love it. I love little mini kidneys. I, I, would, <laughs> I would eat one if he gave it to me and it was, you know, looked right. And it was fine, cooked well, right? Yeah, this stuff is so neat. I spent the idea of going through the developmental process of how these diseases happen and where we can maybe potentially stop them. That's what we like. These organoids are amazing. They're so exciting. 
No, right? I mean, soon we're going to get little organized cocktails. We're going to have like all the different organized in a mix, like a fruit salad. I can't wait. I'm mark, mark my words. Fruit salad organized. That's right. The fruit salad of podocytes and slit diaphragms. Oh, there we go. <laughs> oh, man. Well, if we do have an organized salad, we're going to have to put it in a biobank. But not this biobank. This is a biobank that was developed by... Another my man who doesn't know that he's my man, Joseph Penninger, who uh, runs the Institute of Molecular Biotechnology in Austria. I was at a meeting with this dude. We went out to dinner and sat together. He was a speaker. He was so cool. Everyone else was dressed in a suit and a tie because it's like a clinical meeting. Everyone's a total cracker. And he was there looking really bohemian, like he didn't give an S. And I'll tell you why, because he's killing it. In science, he developed this whole haploid mouse ESL technology that revolutionized drug screening. And now he's applied this in a new way. Okay, so this is a biobank of reversible mutant embryonic stem cells. Genetic screens have revolutionized our understanding of biological processes and disease mechanisms. And now there's a whole you know, bunch of other ways that we can do genetic manipulations and screening now with CRISPR, RNA interference, and all these libraries and screening modalities. There's also, in concert in recent years, a major concern about scientific reproducibility and rigor. You know these studies, the mm-hmm. Amgen, Bayer, and then there's this reproducibility initiative. All these have pretty much converged on this idea that the majority of high-profile studies are not really reproducible. You know, who knows why this happens? I have a lot of ideas. But regardless of why it happens, it wastes money. It damages the credibility of science and scientists and delays and maybe even undoes progress. So to overcome this problem, this major problem, Penninger and his team, they developed a a way to reverse mutations. Okay, these are 100,000 mutated conditional mouse embryonic stem cell lines, 100,000 stem cell lines. That's mind boggling. It's crazy number. (laughs) Yeah. That's why he can dress like a total homeless guy. (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, get a standing ovation. This targets about 70% of the protein coding genome. That's wow. 17,000 genes. Okay, this is lead author, quote, Ul- Ulrich Elling says, Haplobank is available to all scientists and represents the largest ever library of hemizygous mutant embryonic stem cell lines to date. The resource overcomes issues arising from clonal variability because mutations can be repaired in single cells and at whole genome scale. And that's the key. They can do these massive screens, and then when they see the phenotype, they can reverse the mutation to go back to wild type and show that the mutation goes away. As a proof of principle, they perform a genetic screen to look for factors required for infection with rhinovirus, the cause of the common cold. They discovered there's this previously unknown host factor, phospholipase A2G16, and you need that to get into cells and kill them. So there you go. There's a nice drug target. And another proof of principle screen They went after vasculogenesis. They took differentiating embryoid bodies from all these different, not all of them probably, that's 100,000, that's crazy, but from a bunch, and they looked for genes that could affect uh, angiogenesis, which is critical for development and tissue maintenance, and also for progression of diseases like cancer. And here's the thing. They looked for a phenotype. They reversed the mutation and saw that the phenotype reverted to wild type. So this is really powerful. Because not only can they unbiased in an unbiased way unearth novel and, and maybe important genes that underlie developmental or other phenotypes, but then they can prove that they're relevant by reversing it. So, Joe, another standing ovation for you, my friend. But for God's sakes, put a tie on. I'm clapping my standing ovation over here. Are you standing? I'm, I'm standing. standing. Always standing. <laughs> I'm always standing. This is exciting. I mean, I'm very excited about a possible target for treating the common cold. I'm all for that, right? Rhinovirus, it affects everybody. Got a little bit of that myself right now. Let's, I know, let's get rid of that. That would be amazing. Oh my goodness. But yeah, beyond that, the immensity of this project, yeah. it's impressive and is also going to be incredibly impactful. What an amazing resource. And what did he say? What did he say? Haplobank is available to all scientists for free. What? So... Thank you, my friend. The world thanks you, yes. Dr. Elling and Penninger, as well as all the other team members. You should come on the show, too, my friend. No one will have to look at you. You can be in your pajamas. 
All right, let's move on. A labyrinth on a chip. There's a new chip with the labyrinth design, and it promises big improvements in detecting rare and aggressive cancers in the blood and to help doctors anticipate tumor growth and plan customized treatments for their patients. So the way this works, you know, it's pretty cool. Out of the box thinking, left field, you're talking about literally controlling the flow of blood through a micro maze. This chip, by doing that, is able to separate out larger cell types, including cancer cells and cancer stem cells, that are known to be particularly and resistant to drug treatment. So such cancer cells can be at the level of one in a billion of you know normal white blood cells. And this new method is more effective and faster than current techniques at finding its targets. And so the research comes out of a team from University of Michigan, and they're revolutionizing therapy in this way. Here's some potential application of therapy. So cancer cells, occasionally they get dislodged from tumors and they refloat in the bloodstream. So if you can capture those, that can reveal clues about the original cell growth. Also, if you can capture these, you may be able to mitigate the metastasis, the colonization of distant sites. And also, just as a, as a mechanism for gaining insight into the progression of cancers, you can catch them kind of midway between their malignant transformation. So because these CSCs are so fluid and changeable, calcium is really difficult with normal methods that rely on cell surface markers. Or these, you know, it's been long, for a long time we've been trying to find the phenotype of cancer stem cells so we can extract them, get rid of them, target them. But what this labyrinth design of this chip does in kind of a simple stoichiometry way, it pushes larger cells forward through the curves while the smaller cells get stuck to the walls. And also crucial in here, there's like corners. I mean, they're talking about this as like a literal maze. This is, you know, I'm reading the Goblet of Fire with my kid right now. This is <laughs> the Triwizard Tournament. I'm just picturing these little blood cells wandering around being silly. But I digress. That This maze creates a flow that puts smaller white blood cells into perfect position to get snagged. And what's left at the other end is a much cleaner stream of cancer cells that then the scientists can use for their analysis. And once the cells are caught and filtered out, they can study them to find what it is about them that distinguishes them, either their stem-like state or other malignant properties that can be targeted for treatment. And the testing for this particular therapy was done using samples from patients with pancreatic and late-stage breast cancer. So this is real. I mean, these are diseases that have been kind of resistant to treatment. And because it's been so effective, the new technique is being used in a breast cancer clinical trial that's investigating the effectiveness of a treatment that blocks IL-6, which is thought to be an enabler of cancer stem cells. So, I don't know, it's a story that's published in Cell. I think it's really novel in that they're kind of getting the structural impediments that are kind of governing the purity or the ability to filter cell types in the body. It's a unique idea, a new take. And an important one, in my view. Absolutely. And that's it. That's all I got to tell you. That's all I got to tell I love new techniques. And the more methods we have for isolating cancerous cells, the better, right? Easier to isolate them, study them, figure out what really makes them tick, and then how to get rid of them. We're almost there, Kiki. Almost there. Five to ten years. (laughs) Five to ten years. Exactly. Okay, so before we get into our interview, Stem Cell Technologies wants to let you know about their wall chart. They have lots of wonderful wall charts, and this one, Neural Stem Cells. This wall chart provides an overview of how NSCs can be derived and cultured from various tissue sources, differentiated into specific neuronal and glial subtypes, also outlines opportunities for neural stem cell-based therapies. This wall chart was created in partnership with Nature Neuroscience and was co-authored by Clive Svensson. You can take a look at this wall chart. There are all sorts of wonderful things to see here, reminders of how things work. You can get this for free. Stem Cell Podcast listeners, you can have this wall chart for free so you can stick it up on your wall to be reminded of lovely neural stem cells. If you go to www.stemcell.com slash get NSC wall chart. That's stemcell.com slash get NSC wall chart. That's right. Hang it on your wall. Share it with your lab. 
now from the Stem Cell Podcast and Stem Cell Technologies are very pleased to welcome Sierra Marable, a graduate student in the Molecular and Developmental Biology graduate program at Cincinnati Children's Hospital and Medical Center. She previously worked at the Post-Baccalaureate Research Education Program, PREP, at the Wake Forest School of Medicine in North Carolina, where she became interested in stem cell research while she was researching induced pluripotent stem cells as a method for modeling development and disease at the Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Sierra, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. So let's just get started. You need to tell us about yourself. When did you begin school and what were your interests when you first got started? I don't know if we need to go all the way back, but science was not always my interest or biology per se. It's just uh, something I kind of fell into along the way because I was good at it and it was interesting enough and I had an understanding. After I got my bachelor's degree, I worked for a couple of years in a lab. I really enjoyed that. But then I really got interested in, in research and reading papers. And that's when I moved to Wake Forest to enter the research program there and, and to see really what research was about and what I would be interested in. And I was lucky enough to get a position at the Institute for Regenerative Medicine at Wake Forest. And they do some amazing research in stem cells and organoid development. From there, I sort of transitioned into a, a really an interest in stem cell biology and basic developmental biology as a way to study and sort of transition it into organoids and disease modeling and developmental modeling. Sierra, you are the future, my dear. I'm so glad to talk to you. And because we have this opportunity, you know, we're usually talking to, I don't want to say stuffy, they're actually cool <laughs> people that we have on the show, but they're senior. They're either the lead author on the work or they're the senior author or they're the PI in the lab. And I think Keek and I, in our talks, we've been talking about how we should get the perspective of a student because it's been a long time since we were trainees in the game. You know, we've gone different ways, Kiki and I, but we're still close to science, but we almost don't kind of like, I guess, have our pulse on what it is to be a grad student nowadays. So we're going to hit you with a few specific, some general questions about that starting right now. Tell me, in this climate, do you feel like Science is going to, what's your track? Do you think you're going to end up in academia, industry? Do you think that your peers are like 50-50 on that? Most of them academic. Give us an insight because my guess is that we're moving away from academia for like lack of options. Would you say that that's kind of true? I would sort of agree with that. I guess for me, I'm still very much trying to pursue the, I guess, the traditional academic route. I'm very much interested in completing my PhD, going on to a postdoc, trying to get a position as assistant professor, on to full professor, and so on, you know, retire at 80. <laughs> <laughs> but I do see a shift in a lot of students pretty early on deciding after the first year that research is not really for them, but they're going to complete their PhD because they know it can lead to other opportunities. Some of them want to go into policy, some to science communication, some want to go and get a, an MBA and they go into sort of the business and into industry. Some are already looking for positions in industry or, or sort of internships that they could do. A lot of programs now are integrating new classes, sort of careers in biomedical sciences or alternative careers for biomedical PhDs in which, you know, they have career panels and they tell us about all of these different opportunities and they bring in people we can talk to about it and they help us sort of work our resumes or CVs to make them better for whatever we're going for. Because the simple fact is, there are just not enough positions available for everyone who's going to get it early on. Sometimes even during the interview process, they mention that, you know, you need to really think about this because an academic career may not be what you get. Maybe you're better off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering if going into the PhD track right off, I mean, would you recommend to students coming up have some kind of lab experience during your bachelor's degree. Get a master's degree before you go into your PhD. Maybe is there a path that can help people figure it out a little bit better before diving into the PhD, which we all know is a very intense and long process? Absolutely. From personal experience, for me, it was much better for me to, to after I got my bachelor's degree, to take time, find a job, work, and see if that was really what I enjoyed. You can find a job with a bachelor's degree. It's a little difficult, but it can be done because once you enter a PhD, there go years and years, and that's a lot of money invested. And I know a lot of people don't really want to go to a master's track because, again, that's something you have to pay for, and you're already in debt. But 
a lot of PhD programs now are making it so you can't really master out anymore of the programs. They're trying to stop people from coming in, getting the stipend and getting the tuition scholarships and then leaving after two years with a master's degree. I do encourage people to not necessarily transition directly from your BS to a PhD to really maybe take some time to think about it, try to find a, a research assistant position. People are always looking for a good research assistant. That way you can really get a feel for what research is. It's really never too late to start your PhD. It's not like other, maybe other programs where there's an unspoken age limit. You can start your PhD at 50 and still probably work 20 years. I think it's something that, that can definitely wait unless you've done research since your freshman year of college and, and you know for sure. You think you can like transcend the PhD? Does anyone talk about that? Everyone talks like, uh, who needs to send their kids to college in the future? You can learn everything online. Are there any of your peers who kind of like think that, you know, the PhD is a waste of time or it's too basic and they're more practical? What's like the convergence of this kind of new idea of the basement kind of entrepreneur tech guy, Mark Zuckerberg type? Is mm -hmm. there any of that in science, in hard science? I would admit nothing that I've ever seen. We all understand, I think, at least all of my peers that I've spoken to, understand the value of a PhD because a PhD is not just a bunch of coursework, at least in the sciences, it's generally not. What you're learning is how to ask questions and how to answer them, how to do research. And that's really not something that a book can teach you very well. It's really by seeing it and understanding it and having someone guide you, answer your questions and sort of get to know you. So it's really not... The coursework, it's there for that first couple of years just to make sure everyone's on the same level, that we all know the same basic things. But your PhD is really about research skills. And I don't think that's something that you can learn from an online course. Also, the environment. I remember the mentors and the people I had around me were very influential in the decisions that I ended up making. As a woman in science, how would you describe the environment that you're in currently? I mean, this is a huge topic these days. I will say that I find it very, I don't know the word, genial, I guess. I haven't experienced anything where anyone has, I don't think directly, I'm dismissed a lot, but I think that's because I'm a graduate student. So maybe my ideas aren't just not that great. Disagree. <laughs> so sometimes things that I say do get dismissed, but I find that it happens to a lot of graduate students. And I do get a lot of support from my PI. My PI is male, but I'm also conscious that I do like to have sort of female voices there. So when I was choosing my thesis committee, I made sure that I had at least one female. I have two females on my committee and then three males. But I definitely wanted them there because I, I do think that they offer like the thought process there and, and sort of a, an understanding of what I would go through sometimes when if I'm sort of dismissed simply because of my gender. But so far in sort of this atmosphere in graduate school with my peers, with my PI, I haven't been sort of dismissed just because I'm female, more because I'm younger. Right. The inexperience possibly as opposed to anything else. I always wonder about when you're at the beginning of things in science, what's at stake? What's like your great fear? If you had, you know, we could talk about your optimistic vision. I would mm -hmm. like to hear about that too. But like, given the climate, is there any great anxiety that you feel about maybe the decision you're making, the commitment you're making and how the landscape's going to be for you moving forward? Especially within the past year, sort of the landscape has changed. There's always concerns about funding and how seriously the government is taking funding for research. You know, are they going to keep us at the same level? Are they going to decrease our budget so drastically where getting grants becomes even more competitive. You know, am I going to have to be a postdoc for 10 years mm. before a position ever becomes available or before I can even get the grant money? Because so much is dependent on getting grants and publishing. There's a relationship there. You need grants to do, get the money to do the research, but you need to do the research so you can get the application for the grant. So I guess my biggest concern is, is am I going to be able to pursue the academic track that I, will, I want to pursue? Like, am I going to be a, a postdoc for way too long? Am I ever going to get that assistant professor position? Is there going to be money available for sort of new up and coming assistant professors when it's time for me to start applying for those jobs and for those grants? So let's talk a little bit about your research. You mentioned organoids, which are a hot topic these days, and we talk about them on the podcast very often. So what are you working on? I've sort of, since coming to starting graduate school, I've transitioned from organoids and really gotten into basic developmental biology. 
organoids are great, but I really feel like we need to really understand the basics of developmental biology as it happens in vivo before we can really recapitulate in vitro with the hopes of eventually creating organoids where you can either do disease modeling or eventually growing full organs in a dish. So I really got interested when I got here in how cells make decisions, how the cell fate is determined, what genes, what signaling pathways really define different cell types, their states of differentiation, and what causes them to terminally differentiate. So right now, my research is focused on kidney development. I'm specifically interested in sort of nephrogenesis and nephron segmentation. As many know, the nephron is sort of the, the major functional unit of the kidney. It's the filtering unit, what creates the urine. It has sort of these very distinct segments and different cell types that all come from the same progenitor pool. And it's not very well understood how you get from a sort of a nephron progenitor cell into a podocyte or a proximal tubule cell, a lupopenle cell, or a distal tubule cell. So my research is really focusing on trying to find what specifies these cell types from this single progenitor pool. Were you interested in that in questions like this coming in? Or how did you choose your PI, your advisor? That was a hard decision coming in. I did uh, four rotations, which is a, a little bit more than required. I knew I was interested in stem cells. And so I rotated in many labs that were doing some sort of stem cell research. I rotated in reproductive biology and people who were studying growth disorders through sort of stem cell and organoid research. I rotate to hematopoietic stem cell lab. And then when I got to the lab I'm in, just really the basic biology components that he was studying and sort of this idea of a network, of a gene regulatory network that can control what a cell becomes just really spoke to me and very much interested me. That's how I chose. I very much chose based on the project. And I was very lucky that I, it was also a good PI. So tell us about the disease applications there. I mean, the kidney, we just talked about it actually today in the roundup about modeling polycystic kidney disease and heard some startling statistics. Kidney disease affects thousands are served as a disease. Can you talk about how your research is going to address some kind of questions related to disease? There are many disorders that are associated with the nephron malfunction or dysfunction. There's one in particular that I'm sort of interested in. It's called Fanconi syndrome, which is generalized proximal tubule dysfunction. It's actually quite rare, but many sort of diseases start with dysfunction in distinct segments of the nephron. And I really hope that getting at sort of rare diseases that really show the entire phenotype of, of dysfunction when it comes to the proximal tubule will help me understand not only the mechanism of sort of proximal tubule dysfunction, but also how the proximal tubule develops in the first place. What are the mechanisms that makes the proximal tubule cell a mature and functioning cell? Things to do with the kidney are so interesting, too, because you have the proximal tubule, the distal tubule, you have the way that they set up their osmotic differentials, you know, to take water from one side and put it into another, create urine, all this, you know, what the kidney does, they are dependent on each other, yet at the same time, independent as segments within the kidney. So there's got to be a lot of interesting co-developmental factors where you have the individual cell for the proximal tubule, but then how is it affected by factors coming from other areas? You know, I'm listening to both of you talk about kidneys, and you're having a ball. I got to ask, <laughs> Sierra, is grad school any fun? Is, I mean, it was fun when I when I was in grad school, I had a lot of fun. Do you have any fun? And I'm not talking about like, oh, I saw something that no one's ever seen before, and like <laughs> science orgasm. I mean, like, is it fun to be young in grad school outside of the lab? Yes. <laughs> Simple answer. She hesitated. Yes. She hesitated a I little. I mean, of course, being in school, being in grad school, there's a lot of frustrations. You know, it's long hours, 60 and 70 hour work weeks. When do you have time to do other things? But luckily, you sort of really become close with the people you're in school with, the people who are in the trenches with you doing the research and, you know, who can't get out until eight or nine and say, OK, let's go to dinner now. We haven't eaten for eight hours. It's fun in that you have sort of this group of people who are all going through the same things. And, and so you find common interests. You find things outside of science that you can do together and really talk about things other than your research. Because then when we're all here and we get together, that's almost all we talk about is, yeah. is each other's research. So it's nice to get away sometimes. So overall, I would say graduate, graduate school is fun. But of course, there's just there's some frustrations that you just have to go through. What are your coping mechanisms for some of the stresses of grad school? I definitely like to go out. I 
drink a lot of coffee. I never <laughs> drank as much coffee as I did until I entered graduate school. I like to hang out with friends. I always think it's nice to have one hobby or something that you're interested in outside of science. So I do a lot of sewing. Get out of here. <laughs> oh my God. So what do you I mean? Like, like making from scratch? Yeah, or like I like, I like making clothes. Stuff? Get out. That's so very cool. I make some of my own clothes and I like making bow ties to go to like Bill Nye to go to different <laughs> talks. That's great. <laughs> so that's really like calming and soothing for me. You know, nothing stressful. The product doesn't really have to be great. It's not the end of the world if I mess something up. Whereas in the lab, if I mess something up, I might have just lost a month of work. It's really nice to have something outside of the lab, something non-stressful, something that's not really so crucial or important that you can just let it go sometimes and then pick it right back up and it's fine. I'll tell you, I'm afraid to see your bow tie. This is anything like mine. There was a lot of frustration. So I guess we'll see about that. One question. If you could change anything about the, this, the, either the whole architecture, the graduate school education experience, or anything specific in science at large or in your institute, anything that you would maybe shift? Some PI, sometimes when you get to the administration of a program and when they start putting these they're trying to make the program better. They're trying to make it more rigorous. They're trying to make you better. But a lot of times what they're doing is really kind of bogging you down with a lot of paperwork and a lot of details. And sometimes I wish that there wasn't quite so much paperwork involved or quite so many things that I would have to really sit down and You mean like administrative stuff? Administrative oh, yeah. forms yeah. for each committee meeting. I need mm. the synopsis. I need the summary. And I do understand the, the need for these things. But sometimes you're trying so much to really focus on your research, and then you kind of have to stop and get bogged down in the administrative details. I do wish there was a smoother way to get through that. I don't know what that way is for the administrators to determine. A lot of times, sort of the administration of a program can be really in flux because they're always trying to improve. And that can sometimes be frustrating for us as students. But I think after a while, you just start to understand it. And, you know, you hope that once you're not a graduate student anymore and you're possibly the administrator of a program, understanding will come. I don't think so. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think it's really something of an initiation by fire, you know, to do all the paperwork. This is what you'll be doing forever. <laughs> <laughs> but you got to think that nowadays, you know, everything else is being made easy, but you're right. Like there's still so much. Not I find also that you're filling out the same forms. You know, there's got to be something where you just fill out the new information. So how much longer do you have in your program, and do you have thoughts about your next step after? That's always a tough question to answer, like how much longer do you have? It's something my family asked me since after my first year here, how much longer? I'm hoping three more years. I'm hoping to finish after five years, but it can be very nebulous how your projects go. Are you getting results you can publish? Do you get scooped? You have to have that first author publication before you can even defend your thesis. So right now, I, I do think I'm on track for a five-year finish, so three more years to go. But you just never know what can happen. So usually after seven years, they're doing whatever they can to get you out. So I'm confident <laughs> <laughs> that it will happen. I am confident it will happen as well. Dalen, do you have any more questions? I'm about to go have dinner with Sierra. Ha ha, suckers. <laughs> I'm going to really twist her brain there, as well as the other students in this wonderful program. I just have to say to the entire podcast audience, I'm very grateful to you, Sierra, for inviting me here to uh, give a talk to you guys. I'm very honored, and I'm also very glad you were on the show. I think we got a unique perspective here, and we should do it some more, Kiki. I think we got to get the young people in here to light a fire under these old fogies and make some changes, okay? <laughs> That's right. Sierra, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate getting to talk with you. And it is inspiring to speak with a young up and coming scientist, because as Dalen said in the beginning, you are the future. You're making it happen. So thank you. Thank you. All right, Kiki, that was Sierra. What a great talk. What a great talk. The young, you know, they have a way of thinking about things that, you know, sometimes boggles my mind, like with my eight-year-old. But with uh, Sierra, I'm actually quite impressed. Not such crazy thinking. Uh, really intelligent, in fact. And I think it's really encouraging to see that the future of science is so bright. And I think it's just really wonderful to get a different perspective from time to time 
on, you know, how research works, what the what the academic environment is, you know, how how are things going and how does the future look to the people who are just coming up in the industry? So it was wonderful. But at this point, it is time for us to rant. It's time for the good old SCP rant. And this is our chance to complain about something that bothers us and that most likely bothers you. So, Dalen, what are we ranting about today? Uh, I mean, it's may I, I don't want to be in poor taste because I can appreciate that a lot of people are feeling a lot of things with all the tragedies that are going around. It seems like we've had just you know, one thing after the other, if it's natural or some crazy people doing crazy things. But all you see these days on social media is two words, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. Everyone has thoughts and prayers for these people, and I love it. If it, if it weren't so empty, I would love it. I just think it's one of those things that's going on with the hashtag this and everything on social media that loses all meaning, Kiki. I mean, thoughts and prayers, what does that even mean? Yeah, I mean, are you just saying something just to be there? I mean, I don't I don't know. I I was trying to come up with something to say, you know, on social media and I was like, I can't I'm not going to say thoughts and prayers. I'm not going to say that I'm just thinking about it because what is just thinking about it actually going to do? It's going to make you feel good. It's going to make you feel like you did something. Right. No. I mean, but it doesn't change anything. Nothing gets fixed. You know, there's no, that's not helping hurricane victims. It's not helping victims of a terrorist attack. It's not helping. It's not doing anything. It's not changing anything. Yeah. I could give a rat's little behind about thoughts and prayers at this point in time. And I think it's time to just figure out things we can do. Is there a way that we can help? What can we do? I heard Sheryl Sandberg in a new book on grief. She made a great point. What she hated more than anything was people asking her what they could do. Stop asking what you could do. Stop talking about how you're feeling. Just do something. She said, just do something. Send a, a casserole, for Christ's sake. Do something. and. You know, it'll be a lot more meaningful than your thoughts and prayers. No one's over there saying, oh, thank God for your thoughts and prayers. But I guarantee you, they'll appreciate a gesture if it's real. Absolutely. We all want to know that we're not alone in times of strife and devastation. But at the same time, actual action. That's real. We can take it. It's real. Yeah. So everyone, please be sure to send us your rant ideas. We love you to send them to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast, or you can email info at stemcellpodcast.com. And like Dalen was reminding you at the beginning of the show, don't forget to take our survey. Make him spend some money at stemcellpodcast.com. All right, Dalen, that concludes episode 102. That's it. We're done. No more graduate school for us, at least not We're graduating. We're outie. Get to the postdoc so we can really be suicidal. That's right. We'll keep on moving. Everyone out there, we will be back again in two weeks, so be sure to tune in for our next episode. Thanks so much, and thank you, Dalen. Thank you, Sierra. That was great.